Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. So, Chris, we had the pleasure of talking to Paul Meineke. Yes, Paul Meineke, the wonderful ABC reporter and producer who's now sort of semi-retired. Right, and for those of you that watch ABC 7 Eyewitness News, Paul is mostly retired after 30 years of general assignment reporting and has a 45-year career in broadcast journalism that began right next to the Mississippi, Patrick, in Rock Island, Illinois. Oh, wow. And when Paul sets out to do something, he does it with style, and he also doesn't set small goals for himself. He's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and has twice bicycled across the United States. So you got excited about this Canoe Chronicles and putting out these stories about the reenactments and the French explorers and the use of canoes and paddling, and found out that Paul had done a paddle over the course of 70 days from the headwaters of the Mississippi River down to the Gulf of Mexico. Yes. And And you're like, Patrick, we got to go talk to Paul. Well, I just thought it'd be neat to talk to somebody who had canoed the Mississippi, number one, and number two, maybe just pick their brain as what was it like passing the Ohio River in a canoe while you're on the Mississippi? Or what birds did you see on the way? Because chances are Father Marquette and Louis Joliet saw the same thing. Well, and that would be pretty amazing, too, to to not just think about, but to actually go ahead and do an expedition like that, where you're out for days at a time, weeks, uh, months, really, paddling day after day. It would be quite an experience. Although there's 300 years apart between Marquette and Joliet and Paul Meineke's trip down the Mississippi, I think a lot of the elements were the same. So in 2017, Paul and three friends set out to canoe the Mississippi from its source on a 70-day journey. So they started up in Minnesota and got all the way down to the Gulf. They started at the headwaters, which is just a trickle, really, a stream. He also has an amazing documentary on YouTube. Yeah, I think it's about an hour long or so that captures the journey. It's called Mississippi by Canoe. Always changing, welcoming one minute, wicked the next. And we recommend that anyone who's interested in this topic to check it out. It's a tremendous film. Paul brought in a lot of great insights, not only to the physicality of it, but also the people along the way. And those stories were, I think, probably some of his favorites. And also Paul was very patient with us because we're the plotting podcasters who don't really <laughs> know what we're doing. And we were setting these microphones up. Oh, in my God, Chris. You know, he starts talking and it's all clean. We, we get yeah. to edit our stuff. So we take out all the ums and uhs and yeah. repeats and the thes. And There's he, no editing with Paul. He comes out so clean. Yeah. The, truly a professional, and yeah. that's impressive to have that skill over all the years and knowing yeah. how to speak cleanly and not being afraid of taking that pause without having to fill the airways with something. He's a broadcaster, and he's a professional, and it's like looking at a cabinet made by a professional cabinet maker. You, <laughs> you can tell. 
there's a lot of work and practice that went into that. Sure, sure. Rather than the rough palettes that we throw together and then thankfully can edit. But Paul was very nice, very patient with us. And this is just a fun interview. We hope you'll enjoy it. I have met in my life three astronauts that have walked on the moon. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Gene Cern in The Last Man to Walk on the Moon. I have only met one person who has canoed the Mississippi. (laughs) (laughs) And most people that have canoed the Mississippi all the way to the Gulf are French, and they lived in the 17th century. So you are an elite company. Yeah, well, thank you. That's right. It's good to be with them. Yes. I don't speak a lick of French, though. (laughs) And we watched your video diary. I can only imagine to squeeze all that into one hour, there was a lot. On the cutting room floor. It took me two days <laughs> just to upload all the video that we had. Yeah. We had uh, my handheld camera. We had three GoPros. Mine was the principal one, but we had two other guys with them. And then we had my iPhone, which created wonderful pictures. It was very oh, yeah. surprising and gratifying that even in a plastic pouch, I didn't want it to get wet, you could still get good pictures. And good audio, even inside the pouch. I love your title, uh, Paul. Uh, 950,000 strokes, is that yes, correct? Right. Canoeing the Mississippi, which one can find on YouTube? Yes, under Mississippi by Canoe. Okay. 950,000 strokes. How did you come up with that? Yeah, what was the math? Well, it was bad because our math was awful. It got worse as the trip went on. We were in Minnesota, and you know, you're digging in, and you're in Minnesota. It seems at the beginning of the trip forever to get to Minneapolis-St. Paul from the source. And I thought, you know, it'd be kind of interesting given our pace. Now, let's figure out what how many strokes we're going to do. So. I uh, I was timing it out and counting, and my mates kept interrupting me and <laughs> ruining my count. But I figured out that in a mile, because yeah. we had mile markers, in a mile we did X number of strokes, and then I just did some simple math over a period of time. So it's 950,000. Give or take. Uh, give or take, <laughs> about 40,000, 50,000, who knows? <laughs> but enough f- to create arthritis in the wrist. Oh, man. <laughs> How much canoeing did you do as a young person? Were you in the scouts as well? I was. I did most of my scouting experience as an adult, though. Not okay. as much. I never did any canoeing as a scout. As a scout leader, we did Quetico, Boundary Waters, Chicago River downtown, which is a great trip to see right. the city from, from there. is really fun. All four of us have had quite a bit of canoeing experience. And, of course, you knew the legendary Ralph Fries. Yes, In fact, when I was on the trip, I did a Facebook post, and I wanted people to know that he was an inspiration for so many people, certainly was an inspiration for me. And when you'd shake hands with that man, he had a bear of a handshake. He was a blacksmith, and he ran the Chicagoland Canoe Base, where we got our canoes as a scout troop, and he would always lecture everyone, and I know he did lecture me. He said, you don't need to go to the Boundary Waters. You don't need to go to Canada. you got everything you need right here. And then he would explain the watershed and the water near near Narragansett flows toward uh, Lake Michigan, and the rest goes toward the Mississippi. Yeah, he told me once that a canoe is the only man-made transport that leaves no sign that you've been there. No trace. No No trace. trace. Leave no trace. He also said that you could take uh, from the Chicago River, you know, he would kind of plot it out. He says, hey, you can go down, catch the Missouri, go up to Yellowstone, whatever you want to do. Yeah, yeah. There's no, uh, no one stopping you. 
And he's the guy who started the uh, Des Plaines River Canoe Marathon. Which I did, and, and it's 17 miles, and I felt like I had canoed the Mississippi. <laughs> because <laughs> my brother Terry and I did it in five and a half hours in an old Grumman aluminum canoe, bit, uh, older than me. It got monotonous looking at those trees around the bend. Yeah. Oh, yeah. there's another copse of trees. Yeah. And another. Right, right. <laughs> I also did Ralph's trip on New Year's Day. I did capsize. So did I. Okay. <laughs> We're in good company. I thought I was the only person no. to capsize in a tiny little pool of Tom, water. <laughs> Tom O'Shanter Golf Course. We hit a, a stump or something, and my uh, brother-in-law, Chad, next thing I know, I'm looking up at him. It's like the, it's like the Titanic. Titanic is going down. And then the next thing I know, the ambient temperature was 16 degrees that day. Oh, and nice. suddenly I'm in the Chicago River. I'm up to my neck in it, as I recall. <laughs> And uh, it was really cold. Yeah. Paul? I found a couple of golf balls. <laughs> <laughs> How did you escape? Because Well, in a very embarrassing fashion. Uh, we were not too far from the end, I think. I just kind of weathered it out, and we got to the end, and... <laughs> People looked at me like, how in the world did this happen, man? You fell up, fell in? I said, no, I, it was it was my canoe mate's fault. I'm like, you know, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're an August company because President Tony Preckwinkle dunked. She did, did she? It. She did it a few years ago with one of the commissioners, and they went, with their bodyguards, they went, bunk, right in the drink. Really? Yeah. So we're in great company there. Okay. Uh, well, the Forest Preserve Districts have not fallen into any disfavor than I trust no. from President Breckley. And I noticed that the Ralph Freeze uh, waterway uh, signs when we were coming here. Oh, yeah. You know, so that's a great legacy for Ralph. And, and, you know, everybody that loves canoeing loved Ralph. He was a spiritual leader on the water and, and other places, too. Since we're on the topic of dunking on your <laughs> epic voyage, did you capsize at all? Well, as a group, we never capsized on the open water as we were paddling. Okay. There was only one casualty, and it was me. <laughs> well, was, Paul, you're a big guy. Somebody has to take one right. for the team. Right? I took one for the team. Uh, the first day, we're probably a mile or two away from Lake Itasca, which is the so source. So it's right at the headwaters. Right at the headwaters. Yeah. And it's so narrow there. Here's a tree that has fallen, and it's blocking our path. It, we cannot go under it, and there's a bank, an embankment, and I'm in the lead canoe, and I'm the bow man. So I said, well, it's not too deep here. I'm going to get out. And I stepped in. It came up to my knees. Maybe I can get on the other side, and we can pass gear to me, and we'll, we'll bypass the need to get the boats out of the water. What I didn't calculate was that on the other side of this tree, there was a hole that had to be eight or nine oh, feet deep. Right. So I went fully under, and I had my GoPro on my head. <laughs> And I didn't have the back on the GoPro to protect it from the invasion of water. Oh, no. So GoPro died. It uh, took two or three days for it for us to know that it was really dead. So in Bemidji, well, always, Minnesota, I went to the Walmart and got a new <laughs> GoPro. <laughs> yeah, you always hope it's going to dry out and come back to life. Right? Yeah, and it's in the dry bag. And two or three days later, uh, Tom, who's the stern man, is saying, hey, <laughs> your GoPro is talking to us again. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> But it was dead. But I didn't lose the video card. I have all that. I had all that. Video. Oh, that's it good. It did not get ruined. So I was uh, very thankful for that. Did you see this as some sort of omen, omen. <laughs> of, of the future? Yeah, I, th I said. Well, from now on, I'm going to have to definitely stay out of the water. Because this was after Memorial Day, right? That you hit yeah, the water. Yeah, we started. Um, yeah, we started in late May. 
Still, it must have been pretty chilly in Minnesota. It was a little nippy. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little nippy. And the water, I can't imagine, was much, you know, in the 40s or 50s. Oh, but it was just so clear, just so (laughs) inviting, you know. We didn't care that it was cold. John Swenson, who is a historian of early Chicago history, told us that Marquette and Joliet did tremendous research before they came to uh, our region here. We spent about a year. Uh, The idea began long before that, but a year of serious Let's take a look at this. What do we need to consider? Equipment list. What was enormously beneficial for us was watching videos of others who previously done it. And also invaluable were the Corps of Engineer navigational maps. Without them, we really would have had a difficult time because they give you mile markers. You know where you are. You get up north and you get in some backwater and you get very confused and you get out of the channel and don't know where you are. And even in a, you know, in a canoe where you've got a shallow draft, you can still get into places that you don't want to be and get stuck in the muck. Yeah, yeah, we used map and compass a lot. We had our phones. We had modern technology, too. But for old dogs, it's kind of like something you really want to rely on. you got to have that compass with you. It's real important. You had like three-ring binders with the maps on right. them. And it was just about every, was it like every quarter mile or mile or so? Yeah, probably four or five miles maybe per page. Okay. And you can download those, which I did, off the Internet. And then I printed them out. I thought um, I saw that they were laminated. Right, they were laminated. Unfortunately, when you... When you poke out the holes for the three-ring binder, there's no <laughs> space for water to invade. <laughs> so some of them got a little soggy. Or you can buy them from the Corps of Engineers. It's yeah. a huge book, and it weighed too much. It would have been a great anchor. But you can get Upper Mississippi, which takes you from Source down to Cairo, bottom of Illinois, and then the Lower Mississippi. And the river there is, is much, much different than it is up north. We stopped at the National Eagle Center, and we went in and had a wonderful time there, learned a lot about the grabbing pressure that an eagle has. There's a demonstrator there that you hold onto it, and it measures your pounds per square inch on the human being, which is pretty low. And an eagle is like 140 pounds per square inch. What I didn't have in the movie was it was a a little kid who was fishing, and he uh, he caught a a little walleye. The hook got caught, Mm -hmm. gave it to me. I took the fish off the hook and gave it to uh, one of our other canoe guys, Tim. And he says, don't worry about it, young man. Your fish is going to serve a purpose. It was going to die because of the way the hook had lodged. We went downriver a little further, saw an eagle sitting, and he was watching us. And Tim, my neighbor, is holding the fish up and saying, here it is, here it is, flips it out, and the eagle doing a slow-mo almost going by us, zips over the top of the canoe, went back up, kind of flitted with the tree, then came back down, picked that fish right out of the water. Regrettably, I couldn't get the camera moving fast enough to capture that moment, but But it was neat to see. But sometimes just seeing that, just Mm -hmm. bearing witness to something like that is just unforgettable. Yeah, and when we floated underneath the one eagle, he didn't mind that we were there. Usually they're not going to let you get close. And and he just, hey, boys, how you doing? And I'm having a good day today. And then he took off. God, you're right there. That's the thing. You're with them. I was in the UP a couple marches ago because I was up in Mackinac doing some Mm -hmm. riding and there's a Great Lakes boat building school in Cedarville. And on the drive over, then from St. Ignace, there was a couple bald eagles in the trees. Even being in the car that was and seeing them was pretty amazing. I would imagine being in their habitat on the canoe, on the water, would have been even more amazing. Yeah. And, and then to see them actually pick up a fish would be fantastic. They're just so graceful. They own the sky. 
Yeah. And it's so much fun to watch. I did have my camera up at one point, and I was waiting for the eagle to come out of the tree. And for some reason, I'd hit the slow-mo button and didn't know it. So what you see then is the eagle coming out in slow motion. Its wings are oh, gigantic. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> well, that's what you're going to get when you're out on the water. The water, you're in the open. You see the path, and you see the sky, and you yeah. feel the heat when it gets hot. And in your video, you also see the beaver that you kind of snuck up on. He was having his lunch or something. Yeah. And then the beaver was like, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. <laughs> and just, he saw you coming. And yeah. boy, did he freak out. Yeah, we were pretty close. Yeah. We were very close to him. We went into super stealth mode for that one. Yeah. And didn't you have a uh, the otter that came up? Yeah, the otter pup. That was he, really cute. Yeah, yeah was he was cool. very curious. He just, you know, here come the yellow boats. What are these things? They're invading my turf. And his mother was on the other bank with all the other babies, and she's freaking out. Sure. And so we wanted to say, don't worry, Mom, we're just here to take pictures. We're not going to steal away your pup. And he came up to the boat and kind of looked at us and blew. Well, you're talking about the ferocious animals you encounter, but what about the ones that really are ferocious, the mosquitoes? We only had one day that was awful, and I think we were probably just lucky in that regard. We did bring mosquito outfits with us. It was in Minnesota, and they were everywhere. I mean, they were just nonstop. And when they, it's fun when you put on the net and they get inside. And you, uh, <laughs> There was another time we did the Mountain River in uh, Northwest Territories in Canada, and the mosquitoes there were incredible. I've never experienced anything like that. I mean, it was like a black cloud around you. What do they do when there aren't things that they can bite? But we were pretty lucky. We had that one day, and we outfitted up. We made it through and gave a little spray, and uh, we were okay. But I don't remember that we really had a bad time with them. I was surprised by that. Is that because of your nemesis, the wind? Because you talked in your yes, video a lot about absolutely. the wind. We had some nasty headwinds, yeah. and uh, we also had some tailwinds that made it really interesting because obviously we're with the current, and we got a wind, and almost felt sometimes when we have a 15, 20-mile-hour gust behind us, we were almost surfing, flipping along. That was an experience. Well, in this case, for us, it was, uh, it was helpful uh, but we would, when we were going toward Lake Pepin, which is one of the wider spots on yeah. the Mississippi, uh, we we found it was a beautiful day, just absolutely gorgeous. And we'd had lunch, and we're getting back in the canoes, and we're we're going to make some time. And the wind kicked up out of nowhere. It's still a beautiful blue sky, clouds, but we were having waves hit us that were you know one two feet, washing over the bow. Then the wind would change, we'd get a crosswind, and we said, we can't do this. On yeah. the big water, we're not going to make it. And if we had done what, you know, the Minnesota DNR map uh, across Winnebagoshish, which is the biggest of those lakes that we crossed up there, you know, they have a red line that takes you right across the middle of the lake. That's a largely shallow lake, therefore very susceptible to the wind. And we were told ahead of time, do not, under any circumstance, in a canoe, get yourself out in the middle of that water. And it was yeah. a good thing we didn't because uh, we, we got bounced around. We were 20, 30 yards from shore. If we'd fallen in, we would have been able to ride ourselves because it wasn't very deep. But the wind really can just freak you out. It'll bounce you around like nothing. Well, on a shallow lake, we'll then also <clears throat> kick up waves more quickly. That's yeah. why Lake Michigan has a pretty sharp, nasty chop for us sailors that go up to Mackinac and end up oh, with yeah. a northeast wind and you're banging your way through. And yeah. I've done on Lake Erie similar, kind of shallow and Erie. Of, Erie's tough. It, it really, it? yeah, it can just kick up these square waves. It'll just swamp you. I learned from your video the canoes were a little over eighteen feet and about forty-eight pounds, if I recall. Right, right, right. The, the two-person canoes that you used that were right. And your portages looked so depressing and grueling uh, because the audio was on. 
as well as the video, and I heard you. There were some uh, moans and groans. There were some moans and groans, like right. like someone had just punched you in the stomach or something. Yeah, well, there, a couple of the portages in Minnesota were very long. One of them was uh, over a mile. We weren't going up and down hills, so that was good. But you go through Grand Rapids, Minnesota, and you're walking on city streets. And I was doing the the uh, videography at the time, so I didn't have to carry the canoe. <laughs> but uh, one of my mates, Tom Lobaz, had it on his head, and Bill Barr was the other. And they, they're the two owners of the two canoes, which were brand new. And they're walking them through the streets of Grand Rapids across busy traffic. It was just kind of weird that here we are getting our slice of wilderness life, and then you have to invade a city and walk across a busy intersection, which is kind of what the trip was really about. Uh, in Minnesota in particular, you're paddling along and you're seeing all kinds of creatures overhead and in the water. But the joy then is meeting the human creatures on the banks who are just absolutely marvelous to us. Because we're, you know, four gray beards <laughs> and they take pity on us, I guess. Do you know if Joliet and Marquette, when they came down from like Sunny Glace and like Green Bay and whatnot, were they in open water? Well, they trick? would have come across Lake Winnebago as they're going through the Fox River. Uh, and then there's a portage from the Fox then over to the Wisconsin, uh, near Portage, Wisconsin. And then, of course, Lake Michigan and Joliet then went back to Montreal. Yeah. So he would have had some big blahs of both Lake Michigan and uh, Lake Huron to get back. Uh, and, and actually, he was almost in Montreal, as we talked about with John Swenson, and then capsized and nearly drowned in the rapids right before Montreal and lost all his records. And so, thank oh. God, Marquette had records of his own, okay. or we would really not have many accounts of that. Digging into that history and talking with Swenson, Chris thought, we've got to talk to Paul, because getting a sense for the physicality of this kind of adventure, and kind of the, one of the questions that occurred to me was, can you imagine going with the sketchy maps that they might have had, and what, what would that be like? Can well, they imagine? had, you know, they, there were no locks and dams. They started in the, in the 30s after the Great Flood of 27. They had some nasty rapids that they had to negotiate, or they just portaged, and you imagine a difficult portage. Yeah. In my hometown area, Rock Island had some really nasty rapids, is my understanding. Is. Yeah. That's an area that was charted by Robert E. Lee. I'll be darned. Yeah. The nexus of people who knew each other later for different reasons. Lincoln was hired by the Rock Island Railroad to represent the railroad when the Effie Apton steamship rammed it because the steamship interests weren't happy that the railroads were going to cross this navigable waterway. Lincoln was president when the case was finally decided and the railroad won. And the steamship interests back then were represented by Jefferson Davis. So these guys all knew uh, each other. And guess who lived up the river in Galena? <laughs> well, Grant. Yeah, Grant. Grant. <laughs> Yeah, they oh all and Grant, when he is sent to Vicksburg and told by Lincoln, we got to take Vicksburg. If we don't take Vicksburg, it's not going to happen. So my understanding is that Grant had his men try to change the course of the Mississippi. The Yazoo River now runs below the bluff in Vicksburg. Mm -hmm. They were unsuccessful. He goes south and then east and encircles Vicksburg, and their, that long 40-plus day siege in Vicksburg finally surrenders. And then when Grant is president, the river changes course on its own to where it is now. And so Vicksburg would not have been the threat today that it was then because of its position. And Abraham Lincoln took a flatboat down to New Orleans. I yeah, believe. I guess he did a couple. He was on the river yeah. a couple of times. So again, that's good company. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Old Abe and I, huh? <laughs> You're from Rock Island. He's from Springfield. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
guessing he took a few dunkings too in that trip. So I imagine he did. Yeah, they have a statue up in Davenport on the Iowa side of the river there in the Quad Cities, and the statue has a saying from Lincoln thanking the young man who's the son of the bridgekeeper. And Lincoln wanted to know about the speed of the river, and this young man was able to tell him everything he needed to know about the river. And so he used that in the court case. Um, Also, uh, what I found very interesting was how fickle the Mississippi can be. Mm -hmm. And in your documentary, you you allude to that by showing these towns that kind of are being strangled to death because you can't run a business in a town that you don't know if the water's going to be coming next year. Well, striking for me was Keithsburg because I grew up in Rock Island. I worked for the TV station there, and I we would go to Keithsburg when there were floods. Uh, there are still some very nice houses up on the bluff, but the downtown is a disaster area. There's a service station, food mart, and some homes and everything else that had some sense of history to it, the old buildings are gone. City mm-hmm. Hall is now was a laundromat, but it went out of business. You see that all along the river. Towns that were on the river once upon a time that were given life because of the river and then had their life taken away because the river continued to pound them over and over and over with flooding. Those levees are, are, are pretty good size, but they're not going to do the job forever. You know, Twain wrote all about that. The river's going to determine what it wants to do when it wants to do it. I mean, to an extent, it's tame. The locks and dams have done a nice job in terms of allowing uh, river traffic. But when things get out of control, not long ago, a few weeks ago, there were a couple of barges that broke free in Dubuque, and mm-hmm. two barges turned. They were loaded with corn. They turned on an edge right at the base of the rollers, and the core got them out. They've got the know-how, but it's really remarkable that you have this structure and all this force of nature pushing these barges up against it. And you encountered that ship that had sank a couple days prior to yeah, your arrival. Yeah, that was, that, was, um, that was really freaky, going by that. It was a tow. I don't know how experienced the pilot was. You know, we heard things, and I don't know what truth there is to it, but I don't know how often he had navigated that section. But when you get below St. Louis, the the temperament of the river changes considerably. And this is right before the Ohio joins the Mississippi. So the Mississippi's already got a lot of power. It's already taken in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, all these big rivers that are funneling into it. And this tow, I don't know how many barges, but it hit a, a wing dam. And they're marked. They're all marked on the map. Maybe he just missed it. It was at night. The barges broke free. They were able to corral them. The tow sank. Everybody got off okay. But we go paddling by on our boats, and here's this tow, and it's half submerged. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, don't get too close, boys. Yeah, like a ghost ship. Yeah. Yeah. When we were up north, the, the water was sufficiently high early in the season that we felt fairly confident. We knew where they were based on the maps that we had, and we watched for that. Yeah. Tim, my neighbor who was in the other canoe, he was our navigator. He's got eagle eyes. I don't know how he does it. He can see things two or three miles away, it seems like. So he could he, he saw them, mm-hmm. and we could also hear them. And that was really ominous at times. You can hear the water rushing over the top of them, a baby waterfall. Almost. Yeah. It was scarier south on the lower Mississippi than it was up north. But when you go over the top of a wing dam, and you know we have a shallow draft, so you can actually see the water dip. It yeah. goes down, and you're coming back up. We didn't have any problem up north. We did have some issues south because the river is much wider. The wing dams go way out into the channel to funnel this behemoth machine that's moving all this water. 
And because we could see it and hear it and felt that it was pretty shallow, we had to stay way out in the channel. Yeah. And then you look up, and you've got a big boy coming at you with right. 40 barges on yes. it. They're displacing an incredible amount of water. And that was one time that I think all four of us were really concerned. Yeah. I don't know about scared. You're just too into the moment, and you got to think properly. But I don't usually hear my neighbor Tim's voice have a sense of urgency to it, yeah. but I did at that moment. Mm. And so we're uh, we're maybe thirty yards from the tow. He's uh, the the barge has already passed us, and they're low in the water. They're displacing a tremendous amount of water, so they're kicking us, and we're mm-hmm. we're moving up and down. But we can't go to our right to get closer to the bank because we're going to hit the wing dam. So we stay out in the channel. The engines on those tows six thousand horsepower per engine, so they're kicking up a lot of water. Yeah, and thankfully the the tow captain saw us and he powered down. Oh. And that helped us out. He didn't have to do that. And a lot of times they don't see you. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're just a blip on the screen. And particularly if you're a yellow Kevlar canoe, you're not going to, aluminum might show up, but not uh, not us. So that that was helpful. And we were really thankful to get by him. <laughs> and, and he was in the distance. And like any other one that we passed, we're still feeling the effects of the up and down. The first time we were in, we were in St. Louis and we, we were caught between two. One going north, one going south. And we had conflicting waves that were bouncing us all over the... And at one point, I looked over at Tim and Bill in the other canoe. I couldn't see them. Yeah. They were in a trough. Oh, boy. Yeah. And it was like, where'd you go, boys? Yeah, like you're out on, uh, on the ocean or something. Yeah. And then they came back up. At times, it could be kind of fun. when you If you square it up properly and you yep. hit it, you know, it, 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 it's okay. But it's just, at the end of the day, when you've been paddling, you know, some, some days we do 40, 50, one day at 60 plus miles. You know, you're encountering them, it's nonstop, and it's like, oh, boy, let's get to the bank and have a sandwich here, you know. I love when you lash the canoes together. Yeah. And and as you know, you had really good knots. <laughs> Scott, <laughs> Boy Scout, Scout lashing. Yes. <laughs> but uh, the outrigger canoes that you set up, they, they looked very stable. Yeah. That was another beautiful day. It was a gorgeous day. And then all of a sudden, the wind comes out of nowhere, and it was a crosswind. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're getting across. we got to cut across the channel with a crosswind. I don't know that we would have made that if we had not done what we did. I wanted to ask you about when you were in St. Louis and you encountered the Missouri River, because when Marquette encountered it and he got freaked out, he wrote about it because there was all this swirling trees and detritus and just and it, the power of the Missouri coming into the Mississippi really was unsettling to them. I wonder if you encountered that. We didn't. Okay. What we did see was a change in the complexion of the Mississippi, a lot more silt, a Mm. lot more debris. We didn't have swirling and a real fantastic current. In fact, we passed it and we looked, and I guess it was Tim who said, that's the Missouri, boys. You look at the map and you see these two mother rivers uniting, and you're thinking, wow, this is going to be difficult. Let's be on the alert. I didn't feel any dramatic oomph from the current. We did with the Wisconsin River. When the Wisconsin oh, joined, okay. from we could feel the current pick up right away. It might have been oh. an absence of wind or no other distractions, but we felt that we didn't. Not so much with the Missouri, but a lot of junk in the water. Not necessarily discarded items and litter, but just you know the natural stuff that comes from a big river. A lot more dirt. We had brought our uh, water filters along. You, you, there's no way after the Missouri that you could even think about using one of those because it would have been clogged up immediately. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
What about the Ohio when you met it? That was monster. When the Ohio joins the Mississippi, the Ohio is actually bringing in more water than the Mississippi. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's big. And that day we, we stayed at uh, Fort Defiance State Park, which has been flooded out so many times it's not really maintained much anymore. But there's a couple of markers there. Uh, that tell you of its significance, and um, we had we wanted to get breakfast the next morning, so we had to cross what is the link the, the the now Ohio and Mississippi together. We made it across. The wind had not yet kicked up. When we got back in the water after breakfast, we got bounced all over the place. And I remember thinking, fellas, on a full stomach, this is really not fun. <laughs> mm. <laughs> But we made it, and our next stop was uh, New Madrid, uh, which was the scene of the earthquake. Which rang um, church bells in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. And I think it reversed the flow of the, of the Mississippi. It did, for and a while. it created a lake, dropped the water level, brought it back up, and created a lake that exists to this day. Yeah, they got, they got to rattle around a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was incredibly powerful, and we don't, in the Midwest, we don't think of ourselves being in a, uh, susceptible to earthquakes, but I know that Chicago buildings have to be built with earthquakes in mind. The That's right. Code. That's right. And whenever there's a tremor, there's always a reference to the New Madrid. And have we made our buildings earthquake proof? Yeah. I mean, we don't think of ourselves as living in San Francisco. We're out on the plains here, and these things don't happen. But they did, and they could again. <laughs> you know. I think we got more confident as we went along. Yeah. Uh, but the river is so different, southern half, and it is not to be trifled with. You have to be on your game when you're encountering traffic. You can get kind of zoned out because it's so repetitive and the sun is just sucking the life out of you. You've got no break. So you have to be smart enough to know we got to get off the water here. We need fuel, we need rest. We got to rest our spirits. We got to rest our brains. We got to rest our bodies, and we we did that. We yeah. talked to each other, and we're able to to make it without. The heat would just kind of numb your brain, so like simple equations were just out of the question. Yeah, we'd be at a mile marker. We're at mile marker twelve fifty, and we got to get to mile marker ten sixteen. How many miles is that? Yeah, and we'd all look at each other like. Uh, right, right. I, need I can't a get to my paper. phone fast enough to get the calculator out. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, no, we were really, we were stupid. I lost like five pairs of sunglasses. They were all cheap sunglasses because I lose them all the time. Yeah. But one time I turned around to Tom and I said, I lost my sunglasses again. Where are they? And he said, they're on your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were pretty dumb. <laughs> well, I, but I've done that. I did that studying one time in grad school. I was I knew I brought a pencil into the Carol that I was with, and I'm tearing it up all over the place. And I go to scratch my head, and it's stuck behind my ear. So I, I don't oh, know. I've done it. I've done yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that repetitive motion too. It, there's a certain piece in it, but then there's a a point where where you sort of get enough dehydrated and low on fuel that then your brain is sort of like in just auto automatic mode, and you're just going and not really thinking about what you're doing. Yeah, and I think the secret is you have to realize when you hit automatic, and you have to know that there could be a moment there when you're cruising along doing a very repetitive thing that you're at risk, and you have to snap yourself out of it. It was so hot and humid in Mississippi, I found myself getting giddy one moment and then kind of losing my orientation. And at that point, you got to say, get out of the canoe yeah. and just rest up and collect yourself and be smart about it. Otherwise, you're going to make a mistake. What was a typical day like for you? Like, um, 
wake up, you're somewhere on the river. What just give us a, a sense of a, of your day? We kind of all automatically got up around five thirty. Sometimes we'd have breakfast in camp. Um, it could be something simple like oatmeal, and we kind of wanted to get onto the water as soon as we could. If we were near a town, we wouldn't deprive ourselves of the opportunity to have a nice breakfast. Good breakfast. Oh yeah, yeah that right. was fun. Yeah, and we'd go into town and we'd look to fright. You know, we were just. We looked terrible, and we smelled really bad. And, <laughs> and we'd walk in, and then people would take pity on us. The breakfasts were great, you know, yeah. big plate of eggs and hash browns, pancakes. Yeah. So that's your fuel for the day, and you're off and running. And then lunch would be on the water. We would pull off onto a bank somewhere and get something. Every day had a destination in mind. We didn't make it all the time. And the destinations up north, uh, fortunately for us, we found were county parks, state parks, Many of them on the water, many with great campsites, uh, some close enough to town that we could, you know, hitch a ride or, or plead for help to get in to get something to eat. And people just were extraordinary in their hospitality. They would go out of their way to help us, particularly one day in, in Mississippi, which I referred to. It was the end of a very, very long day, and we were just miserable. We were not running low on water, but we were to our reserve supply, and you don't want to get there if you don't have to. There were two beautiful houses on the bank, and I knocked on doors, nobody home, and I remember feeling real down deep in the dumps. It was near Rosedale, Mississippi, which used to be on the water, but the Mississippi left it years ago, so on the map it looks close, but it's way, way, way far away, five miles by walk. We weren't going to do that. And just as I'm sitting yeah. under a tree trying to cool off, here comes an older guy with his wife, and it turns out that he's a sheriff's deputy. Uh, and before I could even say anything to him, and I know I looked a fright, he said, you need water. And I said, yes, we do. <laughs> and he was so nice. We got together with all four of us. He took two of us into the Piggly Wiggly in Rosedale, Mississippi. And the air conditioning there had to have been set at like 40 degrees, and it felt so good. <laughs> and we got our supply of food and drink, and then he let us take showers at his house on the river, gave us the history of the river, the maritime events that had happened on that section, Victoria Turn or Passage is what it's called. And he was just great, and he epitomized the hospitality that river folk mm -hmm. offer you mm -hmm. and that was just so rewarding, and that became the theme, I think. Not just there, but all along, that became the theme, the, the human nature of seeing Mother Nature. You're talking about knocking on doors, right? You, you must have had sort of a scripted speech ready and, and sort of a yes. contrite approach to... Yeah, I'm really sorry to bother right. you, but uh, uh, please don't get too close because it wouldn't <laughs> be good for you. Uh, and some humor is helpful. Uh, yeah, humor is always helpful. Uh, but that, all they have to do is look at you. Yeah. We had one moment when we were running low on water. We were near the um, prison at uh, Chester and uh, Menard. State oh, prison. okay. We were, yeah. Okay. So I'd done some stories down there, and I knew where it was. And I said, hey, boys, that's the prison there. Well, we were a little low on water, so we, had to, we wanted to go get some. And we pulled off, and we saw a water supply for the city of Chester. It was uh, fenced in. Yeah. And my neighbor decides he's going to be bold and brave and climb the fence and get on the other side and see if he can tap something and get us water. Well, he can't. There's nothing there. So he climbs back over the fence, and we walk the railroad tracks. 
and we see this little railroad shack where the crews will will change and it's uh, there's a little office there's a machine with ice and we could have taken a bag of ice but it wasn't ours and so we were being honorable and we didn't take that but we wanted some water and a lady pulls up trespassing is acceptable but not trespassing stealing is fine <laughs> Hop, hopping fences is fine right. damaging water right. Is, right. water equipment is okay but right. stealing ice that's definitely a no no you might get shot for that so. yeah you could, you could. <laughs> so here's a lady and she pulls up and we know that she's in a car that's marked and i'm sure she's driving a i think it's burlington northern santa fe crew around and she's waiting so we walk up to ask her and she dropped down in the car to get away from us and then we looked at ourselves later on we looked pretty scary and the state prison is just down the road you know howdy howdy <laughs> <We're> just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we heard banjo people and all that stuff and <laughs> looking to see if you got stripes on your pants or something, yeah right, right. so uh, <laughs> oh, that was a great moment we, we took a picture of us i took a selfie of tim and and, and myself yeah <laughs> and it looks pretty hideous i can imagine why she jumped out of the bottom of the car <laughs> did you take any kind of trinkets or anything to trade with at a, a, with that in mind we're on that vein. no we took money and we were prepared to buy beer right right that, that, that would <laughs> but, work but 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 what chris says about tom added a dimension to our trip that i am enormously thankful for because for tom and so many other guys that fought there was very very difficult so he has made it his mission and continues to this day and he's recruited me as a disciple i never served but i'm honored by the chance to give out stars yeah and it's just a star cut, an embroidered star cut from a retired flag, and it's got a saying on it, and it's a thank you. We would pull up to these places. We're not announced. Nobody knows we're coming, but there's somebody waiting for us. It was just really amazing, and you wonder if the early guys, the early explorers would have had those moments too. And here at the top of the boat ramp in New Madrid is a guy named Jerry Whitehead who's wearing Vietnam regalia. We know immediately he's a vet. He and Tom strike up a conversation, and then I recorded him saying, when I came home from Vietnam, I was told, get out of that uniform as fast as you can, and he did. Mm -hmm. But now, talk about juxtaposition, the Chamber of Commerce there, the Visitor Center, has all of Jerry Whitehead's medals, and he has plenty on display for everybody to see. How time changes our perception and reaction to people for what they did and what they were called upon or drafted to do. Great ambassador for his town and just an all-around superb human being. So that presentation of a star, yeah. I'm telling you, Tom, several times, he's welling up with tears. Yeah. And how can you not? How can you not? Right. When was the decision made to veer off the Mississippi onto the Parallel River? One of our guys, Bill Barr, left in Vicksburg. He decided that was that was the it for him, and so he went back. And that presented us with a problem mm-hmm. because we had two and two, and so Tim went into a kayak for a while. And he hadn't been in a kayak for a while, and he wasn't. He just couldn't reacclimate to it. And fortunately for us, there was a wonderful river angel in Vicksburg named Lane Logue, who is uh, very active and. Mississippi lore, and you'd love him because he's a great historian. <laughs> he mm. told me all kinds of stories about the Civil War and its importance, and Mississippi's importance to it. He had a longer canoe, a Minnesota Four, that in theory takes four people. So we got three guys in a canoe. So that factored in. The dynamics of a 23-foot-long canoe as opposed to 18 are a little different. Sure. 
and you have to time your strokes because the two guys, I'm in the bow, and the two guys behind are going to whack each other in the head with their paddles unless they coordinate when they uh, switch their positions. So that was a factor. We started out with wildlife, and we thought the Atchafalaya presents some interesting stuff. Maybe we should go that route. Arguably, that's the direction that the Mississippi would have taken had it not been tamed to an extent by man. There's mm. a thing there called the Old River Control Structure, and it handles all the Mississippi overflow when the Mississippi gets real high. Yeah, The Mississippi will never be allowed to change because of its history and the New Orleans and Natchez and everything. But we thought, okay, this would be kind of interesting. Let's We're still sourced to see. It would have been great if we could have gone through New Orleans. I would have loved to have done that. Go out to actual mile marker zero. But we decided as a group that it would probably be best to do the Atchafalaya. So we went through this lock there. It was freaky. Going through a lock is an interesting experience anyway, which none of us had done previous to a rehearsal trip that we did before we started the big voyage. And we go through this lock, and it took us forever and we're no sooner on the other side when the creaky doors close. <laughs> and, and we get on the other side, and we look over on the bank, and here's an alligator, an enormous animal. And he's not moving, and the buzzards are all walking around him. We get close enough to him, and his whole back had been opened up. Oh, wow. So I think what had happened there was he probably got hit by the prop on a barge yeah. and made it to the bank and died. And then, probably another half mile, we see five or six alligators all enjoying the shade, mm. and they're right on the bank. And so Tim is in the stern, and he says, let's check it out. <laughs> and so There's we always move, one. <laughs> we move in close, and I didn't know Tom had his GoPro shooting me as I'm, I got my iPhone, and I'm shooting the, the most of the other alligators got in the water. They, didn't, they were not interested in, yeah. in us. But this guy was curious, so he gets in and he kind of swims, and we're you know we're a few feet away from him, and he's just watching, and then he finally decides to have enough, mm-hmm. and then we followed a few more, and and we try to do the stealth approach, but <laughs> 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 somehow they always sensed we were coming, so yeah. that's that was the great danger we had there. How freaky is that when you're canoeing and there's an alligator in the water, just not that far from you, and you know he's down there, and you're Putting it in the water. Yeah, I said at the time, you got your nine millimeter ready? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what was freakier still was paddling up to that point. That whole area of the Atchafalaya is filled with Asian carp. Oh, And you yeah. could not put the paddle in the water without hitting a fish. Oh, wow. we were I couldn't get a draw. I kept going whack, whack, whack. Oh, man. The answer to your question is, yeah, it was a little freaky, but I'm in my photographic moment. i got to get the picture. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm, that's what I'm... The reporter... The reporter you, says, yeah. get the okay. picture, get the picture, get okay. the picture. You know? yeah. uh, and then afterwards you go, what the heck were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> and one reason you got onto this river, which I cannot pronounce or I'll butcher it. Atchafalaya. Atchafalaya is because the barge traffic was just unbelievable. Yeah, that was another, that was another reason. Um, Good choice. We, well, actually, in theory, the main reason was... We were going to be coming up on Baton Rouge, and from Baton Rouge south is is so industrial, filled with uh, 
petrochemical plants and barges that are parked two and three abreast out almost kissing the main channel. The pilot that we had interviewed in Alton that I included in the video said, you know what we call that? We call that suicide alley down there. Right. We aren't going to see you guys. Yeah. Uh, and so we thought, you know what? It, even on the open water, it's been kind of Dicey. tiring to yeah. deal with the big boys. And then when we got down there at Tripsan, we went to New Orleans, and you see all these ocean-going guys. They don't kick up a wake, not like the barges do. The barges, are, are they really displace a tremendous amount of water, so you're doing a river dance for, for quite a while. But there's no place to camp. There's right. really very few places. And uh, kudos to the people who do make their way down there, and, and many do. But finding a nice little place to camp without irritating everybody who's doing commercial traffic on the Mississippi is a difficult chore. So we thought, you know, all those factors, you know, let's try to get back to nature. Well, and plus, and, I assume that kind of the point of the trip is to kind of enjoy yourself and enjoy the trip, right? So, yeah. So taking that more scenic route, it would be kind of a natural decision to me. Could you sense you were at the Gulf? Did the water look different? No, it looked pretty much the same. Pretty much but the same. after I jumped in... I wouldn't have jumped in if those the, gators were anywhere no, near. No, no. Well, they were actually, yeah, they are in the uh, Chafalaya, but they weren't. We, we had special orders to have them removed from our presence. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, earlier, we're, we're going along. We're on, the, we're on the Chafalaya, and there are all these LSU students on a sandbar. I mean, hundreds of people are partying, and it's a, a river with alligators. But they're they're not going to mess. They don't. They have their spot. Yeah. And the humans have their spot. I love the war whoop that your colleague uh, oh, yeah. in the bow of the canoe yeah. issued. It was blood curdling and wonderful at the same time. Yeah. Before hitting the water. You are now free to let out appropriate war whoops and joy. <laughs> <laughs> we have completed it. Ready, John? Oh, he's lost at sea. <laughs> Well, when I jumped in, I had a hard time getting back in the boat. I mean, the current was really pushing me. I said, fellas, <laughs> throw me a line. <laughs> so I had to pull myself up. And I think, you know, we were, we were all pretty pooped. And yeah. our bodies had been, were pretty spent. But fortunately, I was able to get back. <laughs> so once you got back then and put the canoes away and that, or what was one of the first things you did or meals you got or... What was the the big celebration at the end? Was there anything really remarkable that stuck with you? Well, we went to New Orleans and we we had wonderful dining experiences. <laughs> um, uh, I when we were in New Orleans, I walked out and looked at the river, and I just went down there and sat for a while. Yeah, and kind of just marveled that here we started seventy days earlier on this tiny little stream, you know. And down in New Orleans, it's, you know, what, over 100 feet deep, and there's big ocean boats coming and going. And it's that metamorphosis of this powerful body of water that uh, changes with each mile and has been... I was trying to soak it all in, I think. Yeah. What, what did this mean? How did it affect uh, how, you personally, too? How did too, it affect and... me? And not just the fact that you accomplish it, which is a good feeling, what does this river represent? And then I'm thinking ahead in terms of how I'm going to put this presentation together, knowing that I got all this video, and how do you condense it and make it make some sense and make it be relevant and instructional. We benefited from other people's work, so I felt it necessary. It's an obligation to share what you learn along yeah. the way. That became, for me, the driving force to share this because I am fortunate enough, all of us were fortunate enough to 
be able to do it. Yeah. And it's and it, I really, really wanted to make this a shared experience because of the response that I got early on from the Facebook posts of people. One lady even made up a map. She mapped where we were. I wish I could have seen the map. I would have known. <laughs> but that was just so gratifying. And so yeah. I, I, you, you share these events. You know, otherwise, what's the point? It has had such an impact on all of our lives in so many different respects. You know, the river divides us, it unites us. Mm. It carries an incredible amount of commerce. I mean, we learned a lot about what you can carry in a truck on a train, and you look at the toes and the massive amount. I mean, there are a couple of charts in museums that show the amount of grain, for instance, that can be carried on a big, long barge compared to hundreds and hundreds of trucks that are necessary to carry the same amount. Almost everything that we touch... 90% 90% comes by ship in some form or other yeah. uh, before it you know, gets to your house. Well, the other great thing about your video is it was great for me to see all these cool places I'd like to visit, like the Eagle Center mm-hmm. in Minnesota and some of these cool river towns, or go down to Hannibal. Because you can do that on a long weekend. You hop in the car oh, and yeah. go down there, go to Memphis. Maybe that's another thing that this taught me. Get off the beaten path. Yeah. You know, go away from the chain stores and and where everybody is. Go to the spots that used to be or could still be and see what life is like there. What makes people tick? Take your cue sheet, put it aside, and go to a place you're not supposed to go to. Yeah. And see what's there. And isn't part of that, too, also just that you're... The nice thing about a trip like this is that your day is really pretty simple, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's where your next meal is coming from and then how far we're going to paddle today. Yeah, we're going to go from here to here. What do we have in between that we need to be thinking about? And what are those things that maybe we can get away to look at? Or the unexpected. Be ready for the unexpected. People who have stories to tell. That's just, that's fabulous. And it gets you out of thinking about politics and North Korea and all these other things going on that... uh, it's constantly hitting us. You're just out on the water and you're not thinking about that. I think that's one of the reasons that people on the river trip followed the Facebook posts as much as they did because I think the theme overwhelmingly was, you know, we live in a pretty amazing place and we have a lot to be thankful for. And bottom line is people are basically good and they have a lot to offer. We all wish to help each other. And we may have conflict, but don't let the conflict override who we are and what our mission in life is. And I think that had that resonated. It did for me. And, you know, maybe I'm being Pollyannish, but I don't care. I think that's a good place to end it, don't yeah. you think? Yeah. Um, thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank what you. a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Patrick, I think, once again, this interview shows what a professional Paul Meineke is. Oh, it was great to talk with him. He's such a gracious guy, a great host. It was a treat. Also, one of the highlights for me was, number one, when he offered us some beers afterwards. (laughs) Number two, we met his lovely wife, who was very... She was very nice. Very gracious. Very tolerant, because we'd kind of caught them... Uh, just coming back from church yes. that Sunday, and it was a fairly hot day, and she was very tolerant of us, stealing him away for a couple hours. And then if you listen closely, every now and then you'll hear the grandfather clock. Right, in the background. Chiming in the background. And it's so charming, we had to leave it in. And then I also got to say, Paul had some really funny stories, and I thought we would leave 
you, the listener, with the story of Paul and the bear. Because as you remember, Patrick, Paul and I were talking about the Boy Scouts because we had both been to Philmont yes, uh, Scout yes, Ranch. because you guys are big Boy Scouts. Well, I had been to Philmont Scout Ranch in New Mexico once. Yeah, the two of you got very animated about having shared that experience, well, which was pretty cool. It made me very curious about what I missed out as a kid then. Paul had been to Philmont five times Wow! as a scout leader. So I had told him my bear story about when a bear came into our camp. Paul had an even funnier story. This story will be our outro for the episode All right. about Paul and the bear. And thanks again to Paul Monarchy for having us into his house and letting us talk about his adventures. Thank you for listening. We were in the Porkies once preparing to go to Philmont backpacking, mm-hmm. and at 5.30 in the morning, the other adult with me in our tent hears a <coughs> and we wonder, whoa, what's this? And we go out, and there's a bear mm-hmm. trying to dislodge our bear bag, which is out on a branch, but close enough, and the bear is shaking, shaking the branch, trying to dislodge it. So I emerge from the tent, and I have my walking stick and a whistle, and I am just beating the band and the bear comes down and looks at me like yeah well come on (laughs) let's get it on and i blew the whistle a few more times in the meantime the kids are coming out and they're all watching this and the bear finally decides to leave and waddles off down the path i realize i'm standing there in my underpants (laughs) with a walking stick and a whistle I am armed to the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and the reflection, I'm sure, is this is not one of the smarter yeah. things I've ever done yeah, in my life. That but... was a brilliant move. <laughs> <laughs> Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Chris, we credit Jill Hogginson at the end of our podcast yes. for helping us with some branding, and then she was the one that pushed me originally to do a podcast. In fact, I think when you called me and said, Chris, would you like to do a podcast on Chicago history? I think Jill was sitting right next to you. I think she might have when, been, When actually. you made the call, yes. And then her son, Nate Kennedy, helped out with some of our audio We're sad to say that Jill is no longer here. After a difficult battle with cancer, she's passed. So we just wanted to thank her and just mention that on air. Yes, and we thought since she was a sailor, this would be a proper tribute for someone who loved the sea. The poem Crossing the Bar by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Sunset and evening star, and one clear call for me. And may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea. But such a tide as moving seems asleep, too full for sound and foam, when that which drew from out the boundless deep turns again home. Twilight and evening bell, and after that the dark. And may there be no sadness of farewell, when I embark. For though from out are born of time and place, the flood may bear me far. I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar.
Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.